So Robin and I, uh, in our journey of life, we made a move to Arizona back in 2008. And when we were uh, coming to visit, our initial visit to McDowell Mountain Community Church at the time, um, in 2008, they brought us in June to visit. And um, they had to close the airport because it was so hot outside. And I didn't understand the physics behind uh, the, the concept that an airplane couldn't get lift at a certain temperature. And so that was new to me. And it was new to me that when you walked outside, it felt like your face was melting at 6 in the morning. But it became home to us. Now, when we landed in Phoenix in June, that first time visiting, we were picked up. Well, we got our luggage, and uh, a gentleman came and pulled to the side and uh, picked us up. And his name was Jim Gorton. And uh, we, got, we stepped in the, sat down in the car. And when we sat down, he said, there's, there's bottles of water here for you. And we're like, you just carry bottles of water in your car? And he said, you'll get it one day. And so we sat down and we, we had some water. And that night, uh, Jim and uh, his wife took us to dinner, Aunt Cynthia, and we had an incredible dinner. They took us to the Capitol Grill. Ooh. The next time we came, we went to In-N-Out. But we went to Capitol Grill <laughs> the first time. And um, so we got, to, we got to know Jim really well over the next few years. And I came to find that he had a, a family and a beautiful family. And one of his daughters, Deb Gorton, um, is, uh, is an incredible follower of Jesus, but an incredible mind and heart for God. And um, so Deb is going to share with us this morning. So I'm going to invite Deb to come up. And as she does, I want to tell you just a little bit about Deb. So Deb has her... Um, her degrees, MA, PhD, all those scholarly kind of things because scholarship, yeah, I'm going to give you time to, yeah. Um, from Fuller in California, I learned a great story. Should I tell them that story? I can tell? Now that you're here, you, I kind of have to tell them. So she told me this morning, I, you know, I, you learn about people all along the journey, but when she was doing her studies in California, she said one of the things that she would do is during award shows, she would dress up like she belonged there and she would just walk in. So she's been to all the award shows, but not invited, she just showed up. And if you look like you know what you're doing, you just get to go be a part of them. And so she's got some great stories that, um, uh, that are a part of that. But anyway, she, she earned her degrees at Fuller. She now is at Moody. Uh, in Chicago, and she uh, leads clinical psychology, family and marriage therapy, counseling, all those things, but most importantly is your heart for God. Um, one of the coolest, coolest things I think going on in your life right now is, um, you may disagree, but um, she's, been <laughs> it's in these, cool. it's cool. she's been in these conversations with a family named the Kathy family, uh, the Kathy family of Chick-fil-A, and uh, Chick-fil-A is working to bring in some mental health and counseling into uh, their organization. And Deb is sitting at the point of that and the one bringing that into their organization, which is pretty cool. Um, yeah. Yeah. Um, and she, she's written recently this great book called Embracing Uncomfortable. And I was telling her, the book is uncomfortable to me, so I don't want to talk about it. <laughs> but she's going to talk about it a little bit this morning. And um, 
and her book's available out in, at the coffee shop or in the Connect Central if you want to grab a copy of this on your way out later today. Um, but Deb, it's so good to have you here. You're amongst friends. She's amongst yes. friends, right? Yeah. Um, so help us embrace uncomfortable. Awesome. What, what I didn't tell you, Matt, and what doesn't work on Mother's Day because it's Sunday, is I, when I was out at the Chick-fil-A headquarters a couple weeks ago, they're just the kindest, most generous people. And when I left, they gave me a thank you note. And I was rushing to the airport because that's usually the story of my life. And, um, and I got to the airport and I got on the plane and I opened up this thank you card and in it was this amazing gift card, like, like silver embossed, really fancy. And it says, you know, I, I can't remember exactly what it says on it, but I turned it over and it's free Chick-fil-A for a year, for a year. So I would say like, I'd take anybody out to lunch today, <laughs> but they're closed on Sunday. <laughs> so I've been enjoying a lot of Chick-fil-A. Um, but it's, it's such a, a delight to be here. It's very surreal when, when Pastor Matt reached out to me. Um, I, I kind of grew up in this church. My parents started coming here right when I graduated high school. When it was still meeting back, I graduated from Desert Mountain High School. And I, I snuck into that school before it was built, too. So apparently I have a reputation for being in places I don't belong. Um, it is what it is. But uh, I grew up going to this church in my formative adult years. And when Matt reached out to me, I thought... And this is a God moment, because this church actually has some significance in my life on Mother's Day. And I, and I don't think I'm going to cry, but I might. I don't know. We'll see. Um, Thirteen years ago, we honored my mom's life here in this church. She passed away. Um, right here on this stage, we had her funeral. And not shortly after that, well, a couple years after that, uh, we celebrated my dad's wedding to my stepmom. And so... I had a new mom in my life that I was celebrating, and we have a great relationship. Um, they're coming to the second service. They're, they're that supportive. They flew in. And, uh, and yet, when I think about those two events in my life, one represents sorrow, and one represents joy. And I would imagine that that might be some of you here in this space this morning. There's these seemingly opposing emotions that you might be experiencing. Uh, maybe you're experiencing the beautiful emotions of joy and happiness and excitement and gratitude, but also simultaneously fear, anxiety, disappointment, grief, maybe even depression. And I think what happens when we encounter the polarity of those emotions, we think that one emotion, usually the uncomfortable one, the painful one, the disruptive one, cancels the other out. That we can only feel one emotion at a given time. If I'm feeling sorrow, there's absolutely no way I can also feel joy. If I'm feeling anger, I definitely can't feel contentment. If I'm afraid, I certainly can't feel confident. And yet, you know, just like a quarter, we have two sides. Well, we have really a gazillion sides. We are incredibly complex human beings in the way God created us. But because emotions are complicated and opposing emotions make oftentimes little sense to us, our brains fight to embrace this uncomfortable place. Inherently, we want things to make sense. And when it comes to processing, when it comes to difficult decisions, when it comes to conflict, you see our brains are like water. 
If you've ever seen water, a river flowing, our brains choose the path of least resistance. We choose what's comfortable, what's familiar. We ask ourselves, what's the easy answer here? What's the least complicated solution that is going to get me to where I want to be? And what happens is our eyes go out instead of in, or more importantly, instead of up. Joy, sorrow. We want the joy. We don't want the sorrow, right? Bitterness, gratitude. We want the gratitude. We want the happiness that comes with the things in our life working out in the way that we planned. Fear, confidence. I don't know about you, but no thank you, fear. I'll take the confidence. Because those other emotions, those yucky, uncomfortable, painful ones, they're disturbing our peace. Think about it. There is a lot we've had to navigate this year. We've had to navigate mask wearing, quarantines, loss of jobs, loss of loved ones, social media feuds, racial injustice and unrest. Perhaps me actually stating this list is spouting up some emotions within you that's disrupting your contentment. Maybe you had a great ride to church this morning. You expected to come here and be filled with joy and happiness, and right now, internally, you might be screaming, Deb, you're disrupting my peace right now. <laughs> Thank you very much. This is not what I expected from church. But you know what's interesting? This isn't something new, right? Yes, we've kind of gone through what I might call like the dumpster fire of 2020, and it seems like it's kind of dragging on and on, but facing disappointment, uncertainty, and frustration is not something any of us are immune to. We've all gone through this. So why are we so unsettled right now? Because this time we have friends. Friends who are feeling the same things that we are. The majority of the world is engaged in this wrestling match of opposing emotions because we're all fighting the same battle today. We might just be fighting it from different battle positions, but we're actually getting sucked into what psychologists have termed group think. This is a social psychology phenomenon. It occurs when a group of well-intentioned people, I think we're all well-intentioned people, make irrational or bad decisions because they're motivated by the urge to conform, to agree, to look alike, to act alike, to think alike, or they believe that disagreement and dissent is impossible in order to maintain relationship. Sound familiar? The problem is it becomes this impulsive consensus that is characteristic of groupthink. And that's we're fueled by a particular agenda, or listen closely to this, we are fueled by a desire to value harmony and consistency above critical thought. We're fueled by a desire to value harmony and consistency over critical thought. We're fighting to get our peace back because we've equated peace to something external. We want predictability, we want agreement, and we haven't stopped to consider if that's what true peace really is. We're falling prey 
to the enticing aroma of groupthink. Because we've convinced ourselves peace is this elusive emotion that I have to grasp onto, and it comes from seeking, fighting, bullying people into agreement with my perspective. And the damaging consequence when I look around the world today is the plague of misunderstanding our emotions is driving a lot of hurtful behavior. You see, the world has convinced us that if I feel confident and ambivalent, I have to do whatever I can to get rid of the ambivalence and in order to experience peace. If I feel disrespected and dismissed because you don't see or acknowledge my position, I have to do everything to convince you of my truth at the expense of our relationships so that I feel peace within me. But maybe, maybe, just maybe, we're functioning under a misguided understanding of what peace is. Now, I'm going to steal Robin's momism because I like it. We can do hard things. So I'm going to challenge us this morning to do hard things. As Matt mentioned, I'm a professor at a Bible institute. So I'm going to actually dive into scripture a bit intensely this morning. So if you like to follow along, my encouragement, pull up your apps, pull out your Bibles. We're going to read through a number of passages in the Bible. And if you feel like something resonates with you, here's the deal. I did grow up in Arizona, but I've been in Chicago for about eight years now. So I got a little Chicago blood in me. Chicago blood is like call and response. Yeah, I hear some of you. All right. So if something resonates with you, please don't hesitate. I'm good with a come on or an amen because I believe God has a message for us today. And I know at least he has a message for me, and I'm good with that. Amen? All right. So the first place I want you to turn in your Bibles is John 14, 27. And here we get a picture of what Jesus defines peace as and the assurance that even though we may not feel it at times, we actually do have peace. Jesus assures us that he has given us peace. In John 14, 27, he says, Peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. God has given us his peace, but he says, Listen carefully, brothers and sisters. It is not the world's peace that I give to you. Let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. I want to try that again. We're going to read it a little differently this time. Peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. But listen carefully, not as, and here's where I want you to fill in the blank. I want you to insert whatever situation, whatever person, whatever circumstance is rocking your peace. Jesus says, peace I leave you. My peace I give to you. But listen carefully, not as my job gives me. Not as my relationship status or lack thereof gives me. Not as my kids. I would imagine there are some parents out here who feel like their, their kids are robbing their peace, right? Not as my kids give me. My spouse gives me. I know that there are some spouses out here robbing each other of peace. Not as my parents give me. Not as my retirement hedge fund gives me. Not as the number in my bank account gives me. Not as the world gives me. Do I give you? Let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. 
You see, I wrote this book called Embracing Uncomfortable. And uncomfortable is a lot of situations. For each and every one of you, it's something different in your life. But I actually think embracing peace, the way God defines peace, is a bit uncomfortable. Because the, the peace that Christ promises is different from what the world is offering. And when we look at scripture, there is a multitude of ways that peace is defined. And when I see something mentioned that many times in the Bible, to me it's God's way of saying, hey, pay attention. Pay attention. I talk about peace a lot. And most often, when God talks about peace, it's in reference to a peace that commonly relates to relationships characterized by love and loyalty. Love and loyalty first to God, then to ourselves and one another. You know, my dad, uh, I remember years ago, he asked me this question. He said, Deb, he was, he was a theologian too, so we had a lot of Bible in my house growing up. He said, Deb, what do you think is the one word that describes the Bible? And I don't know what I said. I probably said like truth or, you know, love or something kind of generic. And I'll never forget what he said. He said, Deb, I think the one word that describes the Bible is relationship. Relationship. The Bible is all about relationship, our relationship to God and one another. And for me, what that's translated to is when I'm stuck, when I'm confused, there's a lot of confusing stuff in the Bible if you've read it all the way through, but when I'm stuck and confused, that's what I go back to. This basic principle found in Matthew 22, verses 36 through 40. When Jesus is asked, what is the greatest commandment? Teacher, what is the greatest commandment in the law? And Jesus responds with, the greatest commandment is you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. That is number one. And the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. And I don't know about you, but I don't frequently dwell on the truth that Christ has left us his peace. That's not in the forefront of my mind regularly. I get very easily sucked into the ways the world is trying to promise me peace. And it's often this unconscious decision. Remember, brains, like water, they go for the path of least resistance. And it's easy to unconsciously allow myself to believe that peace is the absence of conflict. It's the absence of argument. It's getting my spouse or my friend or my parent or my coworker or my boss to agree with me. Even when I hold a deeply held conviction and something that's been well-researched, right? I sometimes think peace will only happen with an end to racial tension or the right person being voted into office and ultimately leading to bipartisan cooperation. And the thing is, these aren't bad outcomes to strive for. Don't hear me saying that we shouldn't be working and moving and fighting for these things. But I don't believe ultimately they're going to bring us peace. I actually think some of those pursuits would be more accurately described as peace building or peacemaking. And they're probably better held in the context of wanting to reduce or eliminate things like warfare and turmoil. But the peace of God, the peace that we are longing for, the peace that he has placed in our hearts, I believe it's so perfectly described in the book of the Bible that's usually often overlooked, Malachi. Malachi chapter 2. So if you're following along, 
I want you to pull this up, and you're probably going, I don't even know where Malachi is. Here you go. Turn to Matthew, Matthew chapter 1, and go back a page. Malachi is the last book in the Old Testament. And, you know, I, I love Malachi. Malachi is a prophetic word from God, and it's crafted to speak to the hearts of a troubled people, listen to this, who are facing pretty much the unbearable circumstances of financial insecurity, religious skepticism, and personal disappointments. Sound familiar? That's us, right? Honestly, if you ever want like a Cliff's Notes version of the Bible, don't tell Matt I said this, you should read the whole Bible, but if you want just the Cliff Notes version, Malachi is your boy. Like, you know, if any of you ever need an executive coach, grab a cup of coffee and take Malachi with you. Malachi is great for this. This book deals with the very nature of God, his relationship to his covenant people, the Israelites, and then us, the Gentiles as well, our responsibilities to God and our communities, and our responsibility to and our responsibility with our material possessions. What else do we need to know about how to live a godly life? It's a concise and comprehensive picture of how we are to live our lives, but focused on how we reciprocate God's love back to him, to ourselves, and to others. And within this context is where we get a, get a definition of God's peace. Malachi chapter 2, verse 1. O oh now, O oh priests, this command is for you. And I might argue anyone else foolish enough to ignore the word of the Lord. If you will not listen, if you will not take to heart to give honor to my name, says the Lord of hosts, then I will send the curse upon you, and I will curse your blessings. Indeed, I have already cursed them because you do not lay it to heart. Behold, I will rebuke your offspring and spread dung on your faces. Poop on the face, that's not good. That's not good. The dung of your offerings, and you shall be taken away with it. So shall you know that I have sent this command to you, that my covenant with Levi may stand, says the Lord of hosts. My covenant with him was one of life and peace, and I gave that to him. It was a covenant of fear, and he feared me. Notice, peace and fear can go hand in hand. They're not mutually exclusive. He stood in awe of my name. True instruction was in his mouth. No wrong was found in his lips. He walked with me in peace and uprightness, and he turned from iniquity, from evil. For the lips of a priest should guard knowledge, and people should seek instruction from his mouth, for he is the messenger of the Lord of hosts. You see, the peace promised in Malachi 2 is God's covenant of peace. It's security and protection that comes from his guarantee of an enduring relationship with us. And this peace partners with an appropriate and healthy fear of God that translates to us never needing to fear anything else. Peace is found in the God of limitless grace who protects us from being destroyed by anything the world may throw our way. Peace isn't the absence of anything that produces opposing emotions within us. Peace isn't the end to conflict. Peace isn't getting someone to agree, to agree with you because 
you think your perspective is right, and, and let me be clear here, please don't be poking your neighbor with your elbow. You can save that for brunch. <laughs> Peace isn't a relationship. It's not a social status. It's not financial freedom. Sorry, Dave Ramsey. Peace isn't bipartisan politics. That's powerless peace. It's the powerless peace that the world tries to convince us of. And yet the prophet Jeremiah speaks to this type of peace when he says, they dress the wounds of my people as if it weren't serious. They say, peace, peace, when there is no peace. And are they ashamed of their conduct? No, they don't have any shame at all. They don't even know how to blush. Real peace is functioning from the grounded truth that God is the anchor of our well-being. And when we believe that, we can put down our personal, worldly agendas and pursue this peace with eagerness and intentionality. We can hold space for fear and confidence, joy and sorrow, gratitude and anxiety, because we stop running after peace like it's a condition, and instead we make it a commitment. Peace, I heard it, amen. Peace is not a condition, it's a commitment. Think about it. When we make peace a state of being, doesn't it make sense that we'll do anything and everything we can to argue our way to it whenever possible? When it's a commitment, instead, founded on the rock solid truth that God is the assurance of all that we've hoped for, we can approach any situation with humility and ask the question, how do I demonstrate love and loyalty, first to God, then to myself and others in this situation? All right, let's drive this point home personally. I want you to think about what, what's something that's disrupting your peace right now? Seriously, write it down, jot it down in your phone. Maybe it's something that happened in the last week, the last month. Maybe it happened in the car ride over. Maybe you got in a fight with your spouse over differing perspectives on a family issue. Maybe you disagreed with someone over the choice to get vaccinated or not. Maybe a boss treated you unfairly. Maybe it's internal. Maybe your peace is being robbed by the way you see yourself, that you don't think you're enough. Maybe it's external. Maybe it's waiting on God for something that hasn't happened in your life. So I'm going to give you an illustration. I live in Chicago, live in this amazing apartment, but one of the things about living in Chicago is it's kind of, you never know what you're going to get, right? It's the city. So I found this amazing apartment. It's got two bedrooms. One's a beautiful bedroom, normal size. One's a closet. Legitimately. It's like two by four. <laughs> um, and I have a roommate, best friend. And so we moved into this apartment, and we rock, paper, scissors for the closet or the bedroom, and I got the closet. <laughs> So I thought, okay, not to stereotype women, but I'm a woman. I got lots of clothes, I got lots of things. Where am I gonna put everything? I'm, I'm, I'm crafty, I'm thrifty, I'm scrappy. So I went to the local Goodwill and I found this amazing armoire. Like, amazing. Do you know what an armoire is? It's like big, right, right? This thing was eight feet tall, four feet wide. <laughs> and I thought, all right, 70 bucks. I can get this armoire home. I'm a modern woman. I'm strong, I'm confident, I can do this. So I called up my friend. Hey, I'm at the Goodwill. Can you bring your SUV over here? I got this armoire. Did I mention I live in a walk-up with no elevator? <laughs> it's true, true story. So she, she, 
She's oh, okay. That's what I heard on the other end of the phone. Okay. So she drives over. Now, she doesn't have like a bit, it's like these micro SUVs that exist right now. And in my head, I was like, this armoire is going to fit. No question. It's going in. She pulled up out front. I get the armoire. The guy at the Goodwill, he puts it on a dolly. This thing had to weigh 200 pounds. He takes it within inches of the front door, just right outside, and he goes, that's as far as I go, ma'am. <laughs> he walked away. All right, I can do this. So my friend pulls up, we open the trunk, and I mean, graciously, the trunk of her car could fit like maybe a small coffee table, like a yoga mat, and that big like 24-pack of water from Costco, and that's it. That's it. <laughs> I got this armoire that's eight feet tall. And she looks at me and she's like, Deb, we can't do this. But here I was, stuck in justification, I was convinced. I was not receiving any feedback. My piece was getting that armoire home up the flight of stairs and into the area that was my so-called bedroom. <laughs> so I said, we can do this, we can do this. So she said, we're not gonna do it in my car. And I said, okay, I'm gonna go get a U-Haul. So we managed to kind of shove the armoire to the side. I left her, this was August, by the way, in Chicago, which is like 90 degrees and 90% humidity. And I left her next to the armoire with strict instructions, do not leave this, because it's goodwill. Somebody will come by and snap it up like that. And I gave her a bag of Cheetos and a bottle of water, and I drove off. Now, if you've ever rented a U-Haul, this is not a slow process, right? I mean, you have to like sign away a kidney and your firstborn child until they get that, that vehicle back. So two hours later, I come back with a U-Haul, and, and she's looking at me like, you're crazy. I said, no, we can do this. We're modern women. We're strong. So somehow we managed to wrangle. Nobody, nobody stopped to help us. Nobody. So we get this thing in the back of the U-Haul. We get it home, and we manage to get it out into the, the bottom of the stairs, and she's like, Deb, please listen to me. There is no way you and I are going to get this thing up the stairs. It's got to weigh 200 pounds. And we might be strong, modern women, but we're not superheroes. <laughs> it's not going to happen. I wouldn't hear it. I was in justification. We can do it. I know my piece. My piece is that armoire up the stairs. We got it up the stairs. We almost lost our friendship in the process the whole way up. We're doing it. We're strong, modern women. And she was not responding in kind. She was not. I had to buy her Chick-fil-A for like a year. <laughs> I wasn't willing to listen. And in all honesty, looking back on that experience, that armoire could have knocked one of us down the stairs and probably caused some serious physical damage. It was a very dangerous situation. And we get there, right? Think about what's disturbing your peace. Maybe it's an argument. Maybe somebody says to you, your spouse, your partner, honey, you're not listening to me. You're not hearing me. You keep questioning my decision, and I don't feel supported and respected. And the spouse, the partner in return, has this internal dialogue. This is uncomfortable. I don't like this. My contentment in this relationship is being threatened by your perspective. Our conflict is disrupting my peace. And the response is, I always support you. I'm your biggest fan. I don't know what you're talking about. I'm just trying to offer another perspective that might be helpful. Or, well, when you say that to me, you always offer a different perspective. You don't listen to me. We call that blame shifting. 
And the outcome is oftentimes deteriorating connection in our relationships. Not peace, not love, and loyalty. Maybe it's a different perspective. Maybe you, you're convinced you're right. Maybe it's, I don't have to wear a mask. I'm not sick. CDC kind of is giving conflicting information on this. I don't, it's my personal right and my freedom. And I realize this is a delicate conversation. I'm not trying to argue what's right or wrong here, nor am I trying to argue a political or legal perspective. Maybe just a biblical one. I don't agree. But I do know this, love my neighbor, he commands. Love my neighbor, he commands. What if I can feel confident in my position, frustrated with others' perspectives, and still, per- pursue, holding spe- hold, uh, still pursue peace while holding space for both? What if I can be confident in my position, frustrated with another person's perspective, and still pursue peace while holding space for both. What have I got to lose? You see, when our anchor of peace is God's promise of a secure and protective relationship with the creator of the universe who looked at us in our mother's womb, happy Mother's Day to those women out here who gave their wombs for us to be fearfully and wonderfully made, knit together in the image of God who says, created by me, in my image, you have inherent worth and dignity that no one can touch or take away. Perhaps, just perhaps, if we embrace that, we can believe we have peace and we don't have to always get our way or have the last word in an argument, or convince others we're right and they're wrong. Stop letting the temptations of this world, the misguided definitions, expectations, and resolutions it's taunting, disrupt your pursuit of God's peace. Stop making peace a condition of confidence in your life and instead make peace your commitment. You may think, believe, and feel one way, and perhaps you're right, but maybe you're not. The grief that comes from me missing my mom doesn't cancel out the joy of the new relationship I experience with my stepmom. My peace gives me permission to hold space for both, and ultimately, through that, I honor both relationships. The frustration you have from your spouse disagreeing with your perspective doesn't have to block your ability to feel compassion for their emotions. Peace gives you permission to hold space for both and ultimately hear and acknowledge their experience. The convictions you have politically, biblically, personally, and otherwise may evoke feelings of determination and resolve, but that doesn't mean you can't listen with gentle and loving curiosity to the opposing emotions of others. Peace gives us permission to establish a framework for affirming the worth and dignity of all people created in God's image and to treat them likewise. In his book, God's Way of Peace, Horatius Boner, who was a theologian and pastor, said this, 
to take comfort from our good doings or good feelings or good plans or good prayers or good experiences is to delude ourselves and to say peace when there is no peace. No person can quench their thirst with sand or water from the Dead Sea. So no one can find rest from their own character, however good, or from their own actions, however religious. God says, today, today I have left you with peace. I have given you my peace. Don't buy in to the lies of the world's peace, which will trouble your hearts and ignite your fears. Stand firm in the truth of his promise that he will provide, he will sustain, he will comfort, and he will bring you peace. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you this morning that before anything we have ever faced in this world, you stood before us as an example, as the God of all peace, the God who comforts us in our time of distress, who leads us in times of conflict, who establishes our worth and value before we ever enter into this world. And God, I would imagine just like me, there are people here today who are wrestling with grasping your peace. So I pray today that you would overwhelm this space with the gift and the presence of your peace, that conflict, that disagreement, that uncertainty and fears and insecurities would melt away in the presence of your firmness, your grace, your strength, your care, and your love for us. And in that, God, we may demonstrate that love, that enticing, addictive love to others so that they would be drawn in to your peace. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.